Hello and welcome back to another episode of LMS Cast. My name is Chris Badgett, and today we've got a special guest, Justin Wilcox. He's the creator of the Focus Framework, and he also has a blog called Customer Dev Labs. And he ended up building a course, and we're going to get into his journey and how that started, where he ended up. Uh, but first, Justin, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. I'm super excited. I am a big fan of Lifter LMS, and so happy to contribute to, uh, to your awesome community. Awesome. Well, I ran across Justin, I think, in social media, and then we hooked up for a call, and I realized he had a ton of value for you guys out there, the course creators, the teachers, and the entrepreneurs. Justin has a really unique um, take on finding product market fit and running tests and experiments that trend towards a successful outcome. So we're going to get into that. But first, can you just tell us, like, what exactly or in brief is the focus framework? Yeah, sure thing. So focus framework takes all of the kind of the overwhelming mess of figuring out like how to start a new business and breaks it down into a series of ordered experiments. So for any of your listeners who are familiar with like the lean startup, um, you know, the idea here is that we want to identify the hypotheses that are making up our business model. And then we want to systematically test each one of them. And there's a lot of great theory out there. But what was missing was a lot of practical advice on how to actually implement that theory. And so that's what, that's what focus is. It's this workbook series that just breaks it down into um, like 40 individual exercises that help people actually figure out like, you know, hey, who should I talk to when, I, when I'm starting my company? How should I price it? How should I do my marketing? And then just like lays it out really step by step on how to do that. I think that's really awesome. And I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, power and wisdom in what you're doing is that you're not just talking about good ideas and why they're important. You're really getting into the how to, which is often lacking in um, a lot of educational content, both online and, and in, in classrooms. Yeah. Um, but so you have a book, you have an online course, that online course is out there in, in many different places. And we'll get into that later. But where did all this start? Can you tell us about your journey? Like, where, what was the seed that started you on uh, developing this knowledge that makes up the focus framework? And then how did it evolve to where you are today? Yeah, the, the seed is, uh, is planted in this beautiful, amazing uh, technology that I built uh, as part of a startup that no one cared about. <laughs> it's a huge failure. So my seed is focus grows out of a big pile of failure. Um, I, I left Microsoft as a developer, started a company, and like I said, built some awesome technology that no one wanted. Uh, and as I was trying to figure out like what happened, like how could, how could something that I worked so hard on have possibly failed in such a colossal way, I began to uh, fall into the, these... Um, theories around customer development and lean startup and they were they were really insightful uh, and they're basically built on this premise that customers don't buy products customers buy solutions to problems and like that just that that thinking and understanding that like really like shifted where I where I was putting my energy and helped me understand um, that I was doing it wrong I'd put all my energy into this product into this thing that I thought the world needed but it turns out that didn't solve a real problem for the world so did you try to fix the thing or start over or just were you just doing a post-mortem trying to figure out what just happened? Yeah, it was a post-mortem. 
but I'm like, the thing had died. It was over. Okay. <laughs> and I was trying to figure out what, you know, what, how do, how do I change it for next time? Cause I knew I still wanted to start a company. So uh, now when I started reading into this stuff, this was like I mentioned before, just a ton of great theory out there, but I didn't understand how to apply the theory. And that's basically where the customer development labs blog comes from. It's just me trying to figure out, okay, well, there's this great theory about how getting out, out of the building. So we shouldn't be inside the building thinking of ideas. We need to get out of the building, go talk to our customers and our customers give us the ideas. And so I was like, okay, well, how do you do that? Uh, so the blog just sort of explored that and how to go do that. And that was really born out of, um, they, I went to a, a networking uh, you know, meetup and there was a panel and just, I'd heard the same advice you know, probably a couple dozen times. Uh, and the advice that someone, someone asked, hey, you know, what should I do getting started? And someone on the panel said, you just need to go out and build something and see how the market reacts. And I, I just knew that didn't work. Like it didn't work for me, it didn't work for so many people. And so uh, after a while, I was like, I have to start sharing at least what it looks like when you try to apply this customer development principles so that other people can kind of see what that looks like in the real world. So yeah, so that was the genesis. That was a start of, of the blog and then uh, after that the blog turns into a series of like speaking engagements and I do quite a bit of work for a new emerging uh, um, startup communities around the world and then mentoring of startups and then uh, along the way I actually changed and pivoted my original company and we found product market fit by doing something completely different by not worrying about like features and awesome product at all we ended up just documenting the health out of our product so that it can meet a higher security bar. And that's what our customers wanted. They wanted to go get Department of Defense contracts. And so to get that, they had to have a higher level of security. And to get that, we had to add even more documentation about our security. So um, it turns out our customers didn't want more features. They just wanted more documentation. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Well, how much time went by from the startup that failed to you know, evolving this methodology to you know, going and speaking and consulting on this? Yeah. Now, this has been a long journey. So the startup died in, I'm going to say, let's see, 2010-ish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 2010-ish. And then, so we're seven years later now. And, uh, and now I've, you know, gone on all this stuff. So it's taken a long, long time to evolve all of these things and put these pieces together. Uh, yeah, for sure. Awesome. And yeah, I think that's something that's often overlooked is just the, um, the timeline. There is no, and it may appear like overnight success or whatever. Um, I think it was 2012. I was writing a blog post about how I was creating an online course. And a lot of my blog posts, um, you know, they didn't get much interest or whatever, but that one like exploded. I'm like, oh, there might be something here. Uh-huh. But, but here we are. Like it's, it's many, many, many years later. But um, <clears throat> You know, I was already like a hundred blog posts deep before I got to that one. Wow. <laughs> so, wow. Uh, I, I just want to emphasize that in my opinion, blogging is not dead. It's a great way to like workshop ideas and explore, um, you know, the edges of something. Like you mentioned, uh, you were hearing some good like theories and stuff, but you were like, but how do I do it? How do I do it? So you started taking leadership and exploring that yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's a journey. It takes time. Yeah, man. No, like, totally. And, and as far as blogging said, I don't know if anyone's saying that, but they are. I don't think they understand the power of it. Um, because like, I'm going to start a new initiative here in terms of curriculum development. And I've just been 
and working with my partner on this and we'll literally start another blog probably next week um, because like there is so much value in providing value and solving problems for our customers like that's how we generate connections and ultimately how we can solve problems in a financially sustainable way through courses or through whatever it is um, but yeah blogging is just an amazing way to connect with customers and solve their problems well, let's, let's talk a little bit about that transition from consulting to online courses. Or, and there was a book in there too. Like what's, what order did you go in mm-hmm. and how did that play out? Yeah. So um, my world uh, starts with this blog and I'm really doing a bunch of advising and mentoring like all for free and like just because I love the community and I want to understand the problems and I didn't have any, I didn't have any plans on like building a business around serving early stage entrepreneurs. But this blog was getting more and more traction. You know, it started off with, no, I, I didn't have any audience. And then eventually it was getting, you know, 100 visitors a day just from some blog posts that I'd written up. And then after that, I thought, well, you know, what if I could find some financial um, consistency through, through this blog and if I monetize that? And I did what's called a false door test. And this is, this is like one of the normal experiments in any sort of, of, uh, MVP or minimum viable product or lean startup processes, the false door experiment is where you say, hey, here is a solution to a problem and it's behind this closed door. And then you just measure how many people try and open that door to gauge interest in that thing. And so in my case, I had this blog, I had some traffic coming up and I just added a little banner bar to the top and I said, hey, uh, I'm offering a video course in how to uh, find product market fit. You know, click here for more information. And then I just measured how many people clicked that button. Uh, and behind that false door was nothing. It basically said, hey, thanks for your interest. We're, we're trying to test demand for this video course. Uh, if you'd like more information, please enter your email address below and then we'll tell you about it. And so I had I split test this false door. So split test meaning I had one version that was, hey, a video course. And I had the same thing. Hey, I'm going to write a book about uh, testing or finding product market fit click here for more. And then I had one for, oh, uh, I have a, a, a mentoring, like some sort of mentoring, one-on-one mentoring for finding product market fit. And I just measured what my audience wanted. And it was clear after this that my audience wanted a book. And so like, I had no intention of writing a book at all, uh, but my audience said they wanted it. And I said, okay, then let's go on to the next phase, which was not uh, what, which modality do people want to learn? It's how much do they want to pay? Like, are they willing to pay enough for this book that it's worth my while to build? And so after that, I had a, the bar up at top that said, hey, I'm writing a book. And then after that, you clicked onto a page that was basically a pre-order. Like, hey, hey here's, my, uh, here's the book that I'm going to write. Uh, if you purchase this, you'll get a discount. And then I did a bunch of A-B testing on pricing. So what ostensibly started as like an electronic book um, for at electronic book prices, I, I started at, I think, $39.00. Um, for my first test and ran a bunch of experiments and found that at $99, it actually converts better than at $39. And this thing is like a, it's a tome. <laughs> and so I knew it was going to take a lot of work. Anyway, so I just experimented with that until I had, eventually I had 75 pre-orders before I ever wrote a line of it so that I knew that there was real demand for it. Um, so it was, yeah, basically just a series of small experiments to determine whether or not there was, what, what there was demand for and if there was enough demand to make it worth my while to build it. That's awesome. And I, I just want to underscore the importance and the efficiency of doing things that way. So in terms of the false door test and pre-selling, 
I mean, you can save yourself. The, the biggest, most classic mistake is to lock yourself in the creative cave and go build this thing, uh, the course, the, the book, the consulting practice, just in a vacuum. And then, but you could be making a huge error and wasting wow. a lot of time or charging the wrong price. So uh, <clears throat> just to go over the false door test again, um, I think there's a lot of different ways to do that. You were talking about measuring clicks. It's got to be measurable. So you could do clicks, you could do opt-ins, um, you could have people fill out some kind of application, you could have a phone number for people to call, uh, you could ask people to send you an email or whatever. I mean, can you think of any other false door test ideas that you've seen out there? Yeah, it, it's all about, we got to connect the dots between where you are right now and what your ultimate goal is. And I call that defining your victory. You have to define your victory. So for some people, this is about impact. Like I'm building an organization that we want to have impact. So I want to teach X number of people, right? And so the thing you need to measure is, well, what's going to, what am I going to measure to determine if I'm actually impacting people? And so if you're testing that, you might want to test, do I get their email? And then if I, if I want to measure their impact, how many people actually read my follow-up emails to them? Right, because that's the that's the measurable that's the metric that matters. If it's monetary, a monetary goal that you have, then you want to measure can you actually sell something. So, as far as the false door test, it's basically just pick something, any metric that you can measure that's going to help you get to what I call your currency test. And your currency test that that's the big one. Um, so you're collecting. Uh, eventually, you're trying to identify your funnel and optimize that um, during your offer test or your fake door test, and then eventually you're gonna sell the thing you know can you actually get people to read a thing or can you get people to take a course or can you get them to give you money how was it that you were able to um be open-minded enough to like challenge your assumptions i mean perhaps it was because you came from a startup failure um luxury lms is actually not my first software product i don't know if i've said this on this <laughs> podcast but i know what it's like and when you come back around that second time sometimes you're you're more open to having your assumptions be challenged or whatever. But I mean, yes. how was it for you? Like, why didn't you just say, all right, I'm doing a book. It's going to be a $20 ebook. How did you be like, but wait a second, maybe there's this, I, I have elasticity in the format and the medium and the price. Like, where does that come from? Yeah, it, it absolutely comes from my failure. Like, and, and this is a pattern I see over and over and over again, that the methodologies that are in, in focus or, you know, whatever framework you're going to use, Lean Startup or Customer Development, uh, they, are, they are emotionally difficult to do, right? The, the fun thing is to build a thing. Like, it's fun to write software. It's fun to write a book. It's fun to build a course, right? Um, the problem is that I have been down that road, and I've built far too many things that people don't want. And eventually, you learn that what, the only thing more fun than building a product is building a product that people will use, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's a, lot uh, I, it's a lot more fun, right? But it does take more work and it's more emotionally difficult to do that work. So um, I've just, yeah, it's, it's through this, uh, through this agony of, of failure that I've learned that it is better to take the time to run these small experiments um, than it is to just like, like sit in your, like you're in your creative cave and just build something. Because I, I'll tell you, I promise you, if I would have never picked a book, I would have never thought that people wanted a book. I would have thought they wanted the mentoring first, which was the least highly converting. Uh, and then I would have thought the video course, I would have picked book last. So uh, I would have been totally wrong. I would have spent a bunch of time building out something that no one wanted. And I certainly wouldn't be talking here with you today uh, if I had not run those experiments. That's awesome. So take us, let's pick up the thread on the story from, okay, it's going to be a print book. And then what happened next? 
Yeah, so we're going to have, um, so I knew it was going to be a, an actually electronic book, um, and then I tested demand for print book because print books are way more expensive. Uh, and again, here I found that at, at $299, it's actually a five workbook series, and so workbooks are like just more complicated and expensive to build. Um, that I found at $299, it was actually worth producing those books. Uh, and then I, then I ran a test for a video course, so the same sort of deal, you know, false doors, measuring testing different price points and then uh, so then once I knew I had something <clears throat> so it was sort of it, the phases were pre-orders having written nothing then I wrote the whole thing and then gave it to everyone who pre-ordered that took about I think it took like a year to write the whole thing like it, it takes a long time to write this thing and then I was selling during that time and I gave it to people as I was selling it and then after I had it then I, run, I ran basically a crowdfunding campaign for a nicer version of it and right, one that was that? like a, so i so i ran the crowdfunding campaign because a crowdfunding campaign is an incredible way to like the gate an entire community behind an initiative right it's basically like a month-long marketing campaign yeah. uh and so i already so this is this is a really fascinating um technique a lot of people recognize the value in crowdfunding because it helps you test and run an experiment you get to understand like should i build this or should I not? But if you wait until the crowdfunding campaign to actually run your experiment, that means you've missed out on all of the actual marketing bonus that comes with a crowdfunding campaign. You could be trying to sell the wrong thing. So I optimized my message and everything before the crowdfunding campaign. Then I ran a crowdfunding campaign to ostensibly like go get and, and get my... What was that? To get scale? To get more scale? Yeah, to, to get more scale and also to get a nicer version of the book. So I needed to pay for... Uh, just higher quality printing and I need to pay for a, a nicer website and all this kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, we had like this whole big, big campaign, like a 30 day campaign. Um, and also I had, so throughout this time during my blog, I had never emailed my subscribers about my book, right? I had all, all the pre-sales were just from people coming to the landing page. And I would basically been waiting to actually sell the book to my audience that I built up over time. And I think at that time we'd probably like 10,000 subscribers. 12,000, something like that, um, until the book was done. So once the book was done and finished and the crowdfunding campaign was ready, then I started emailing all the subscribers I had kind of built up. Uh, now, it was during that, that crowdfunding campaign that I actually, I just I said, you know what, about half of the people who are pre-ordering Focus Framework are actually entrepreneurship teachers. So they're consultants or they're people who are uh, teaching in their local communities, um, like uh, community out reach and community support or the university professors. So I thought, let, let's just see what happens if I host a little online workshop for, for people who are teaching entrepreneurship. Uh, and I, I hosted this and it turns out one of the people who was in that course wanted to use focus in his university, like as in the course he taught for his, um, his entrepreneurship course. So uh, an, an, has, another way to say that is perhaps um, you were, it was kind of B to C business to customer, but then you started to realize it was kind of B to B or B to teacher or B to T, whatever you call it. Like you <laughs> yeah, were, right, right. you started attracting a different, there were different segments in your audience. Exactly. Exactly. This is something that I work with entrepreneurs all, all the time on um, that we have to you basically, you niche to win, right? Of course, I knew there was so many people that I could help with a, a practical guide to finding product market fit, but I 
was really, really narrowly focused on early stage founders who are reading my blog for practical advice. Um, but what happens when you niche and you solve a real problem for a small group of people is that other people who have similar problems, they will start finding you. You don't have to cast this big giant net to get everyone all at once. You solve one problem really well for a small group of people, other people will find you. And then from there, like this university professor, he said, hey, will you build a curriculum version for me? And I was like, intrigued. And, uh, and eventually it was like, yes, this is a great idea. And it turns out that's an entirely different segment and it's arguably much bigger than the one I was focused on. But I wouldn't have known that if I tried to like sell one version that was a curriculum at the beginning and one version that was for uh, accelerators and one version that was for founders. I had to solve a problem really well for a small group of people before I could actually attract the attention of other markets. I, um, I'm familiar with the concept of the, the beachhead market. Uh, Crossing the Chasm is a classic business book. Um, <clears throat> can you lay that out? Like, who was your, what is the beachhead market and who was it for you? And then can you just kind of tie that into your story? Sure, of course, of course, yes. So the beachhead market, basically, if you're familiar with the, the curve and crossing the chasm, you know, it's one of these normal distributions. And it starts off with this very small group of people. Um, called the early adopters, who are going to be, um, I have a slightly different, what I, what I think is kind of more practical definition of that beachhead market. And so I'll, I'll describe it here, um, and people can look up what beachhead market looks, means. But to me, an early adopter is someone who is actively trying to solve a problem. Okay, remember at the beginning we talked about like, someone who, is, we, customers don't buy products, they buy solutions to problems. So for right? you, it was the early stage founder, right? Exactly. Yeah. So it's my early stage founder. That's my overall customer, right? But my early adopter is not just any early stage founder, right? My early adopter is the person who's actively trying to solve the problem. I don't know how to do lean startup. Okay. okay? So that's a very, very small segment. So all early stage founders, you think about who even knows about lean startup? Well, it's like this many people, right? And so who has read the book and then tried to do it on their own and actually failed and doesn't know how to do it? Well, it's like this group of people. It's like a tiny, tiny group of people who are trying to solve this problem. But by solving their problem really, really well, like we talked about before, you, you get brand awareness and you, um, people will start trusting you. You get authenticity. They're like, oh my gosh, this person solved this problem really well. Maybe he can solve me, help me solve some other problem. Uh, and you can branch out from there. So that's what I espouse all the time is you got to find the people who are already trying to solve the problem that you want to solve and then solve their problem. Don't try and be everything for everybody. And let me, let me just ask you that question uh, in terms of the lean startup. How did you find the people that failed? Like how did, how mm. did you find that? How did you find those early adopters? How could you, yeah, or, or, or was it just from your writing and your blog? It grew organically through search. Yeah. It, it's the same answer. So it turns out that I was writing, I was having a problem, right? My problem was great book. I got it too. Great book, but how do you do it? <laughs> right. right. Um, so, so the blog customer dev labs was my me seeking a solution to that problem. And it turns out other people were also seeking solutions to that problem. And so they found me because I was trying to solve that problem. So it became one and the same. My channel was basically a channel of early, adopters looking for solutions to this problem and then all i did was offer a better premium solution to that problem over the blog gotcha gotcha well now that you started attracting these other markets we have professors becoming interested in you uh, keep going like what happened there and <laughs> and tell us why that's so much more because it's not just the professors buy who would buy like one book right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so uh, this has been really fascinating. Um, so you should know, like, I, I am not a professor. I did go to college, but like, that's my only experience with, uh, with higher level education. And so getting into this market is, is incredibly difficult um, unless you've done this kind of groundwork. And it turns out this market is really fascinating because you can get, if you get one professor to agree to use your textbook or your resource in their course, then you ostensibly have one buyer for every one of their students, at least in the United States. It's different outside of the United States, but in the United States, you know, it's not, it's, it's very common for a professor to have 20, 30, 50, even 100 students in their course. And if they think that you're providing a valuable resource, uh, then you can sell your course, uh, your, your course, your t textbook to all 100 people in their class. Um, and, and so I've actually, you know, um, I've actually just Started this entire process over again after that one professor started all over again and then just this week we met our um, what was called a success metric for our currency test so we started this process all over again we did false doors and we did we did a bunch of interviews then we did false doors then we did currency testing we just hit our success metric so it looks like we'll be doing the exact same thing again with a larger curriculum version of this entire thing uh, going forward how did you uh how do you conduct interviews like how do you how do you do that yeah this is super super important it's like the most important step that i found in enabling me to find product market fit for myself and what i coach everyone on um okay the goal of the interview is to identify the problem your customers are trying to solve once you know their problem you can start building the marketing copy and you can start building your feature set so no it doesn't go the other way around. We don't start with like a feature set and then we try and market it to our customers. We start with the customers, use them to build our marketing copy and use that marketing copy to go build our feature set. So how do we go figure out their problems? We have to do these interviews. Now these interviews are very special kinds of conversations uh, where you will not talk about the thing you want to build at all. It will be an entirely empathetic conversation where you are listening to them and their problems. So why do they even uh, like allow you in the room or like what's the, what's in it for them to have the interview? Yes. Yes. Great question. Why would they waste their time talking to some stranger? Right. Remember when we talked about you got to find the people who are already trying to solve the problem, right? These people who are actively seeking some solution. If you go and offer them and say, Hey, I see that you're trying to solve this problem over here. I am also trying to solve that problem. Uh, and I'm trying to build a you know, solution in a scalable way, whatever. Um, can I talk to you about the problems that you're having and solutions you've tried? And they're far more likely to agree than if, they, if you just walk up to some random stranger, right? Uh, and, or try and email, cold email. Uh, you know, uh, if I try to email like uh, a thousand startup founders, it's like I'm not going to get any conversion rate. But if I find the founders who are going to lean startup meetup groups, who are buying other books and leaving reviews on Amazon for other people's books. And I target those people in specifically. I know they're trying to solve the problem. And so they're more likely to give me their time. Um, so that's how you get the interview. And then once you have the interview, there's just a very specific set of questions you're going to ask like, Hey, I see you're trying to do this thing. What's the hardest part about doing that thing? And then you just listen to them and then you ask them, okay, so why, why is that hard? So what you're listening to for there is the emotions that come out because ultimately, like we said, people, uh, customers buy solutions to problems and that the real problem is the emotion that is, that 
comes up for them. And so when you can understand the emotions that are associated with the problem they're having, that's your marketing copy. So in my case, are you overwhelmed trying to find product market fit? Like overwhelmed was the word that comes up over and over and over again. You know? So I build my marketing, I build my marketing copy. And then once I know that overwhelmed is the problem, oh, the way to solve overwhelm is to break a big, crazy, complex process into individual steps. And so there's my feature. My feature set comes directly from my conversations with my customers. That's awesome. I think this past two minutes here is really at the heart of what entrepreneurship is. <clears throat> it's that is like that process you described is that the talent and it's the unique ability. It can be trained, it can be learned. But if you have fun doing that kind of thing, I mean, that is the signal that you're an entrepreneur. Um, yeah. To, I like to, to think of entrepreneurship yeah. as just like the French word for solving problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, okay. and it's such a great great place to be like if your job is to solve people's problems in a financially sustainable way like what what better job is there in the world yeah yeah well i i think there's a lot of people out there who prefer to like go into a certain world and like execute on a certain task or work with certain materials but like like you said you have to go in there totally detached from what it is you think you might build and really be a vessel for understanding the problem and then you get mm -hmm. to go be creative and build yeah. the marketing and build the thing. Yeah. So <laughs> that's really fascinating. And, uh, it, it might be worth talking just a little bit because like we were talking about kind of the optimal way to build a company, right? Where you, where you start with the people you want to serve, you talk to them, but so many people already have an idea that they're working on right, right now. And a very often frequent question I get is, okay, yeah, fine. That's the way you should do it. But I've already started. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm trying to sell this thing. And like, what do I do now? Uh, so if you think it's worthwhile, I can just speak yeah. just briefly. What's okay. The, okay. So next, so let's pretend we've built a course or built something and no one's buying it or not enough people are buying it or we don't know how to get people to buy it. Um, so what you, what I'm going to recommend there is that you take the thing you've got and then you peel a layer of the onion and say, okay, what problem does this really solve for my customer in my customer's own words? Right? So, I can't say something like, oh, you know, the focus framework, the problem it solves is that there's not an actionable uh, resource for applying lean startup theory because that's not, the, that's not the words my customers would use, right? I'd have to reverse engineer it and say, oh, you know what the problem well, is that... When they're overwhelmed at the bar, what would they say to a friend? Exactly, exactly. Right. It's just like, oh my God, I, <laughs> I, I'm not doing anything. Uh, I'm being lazy. I mean, you know, like I'm not getting anything done because I'm overwhelmed. That's exactly right. So... Uh, what would your friend tell another friend at a bar about their problem? I think I like that. So, uh, so break it down to that level. So now you know that you have a hypothesis about the problem they're going to solve. Now you're going to ask yourself, who is already trying to solve this problem? And what steps are they taking to try and solve the problem that you can observe? So remember when I said, I can target people who are reading and leaving reviews about books on applying Lean Startup? Just because someone reads Lean Startup doesn't mean I can find them, right? I don't have the list of all the people who've read this. But if you can look for those, those one-star reviews, like, exactly. hey, man, how do I actually do this? You're like, boom, exactly. Google yeah. their name. <laughs> exactly. Find their name, then contact them. If they're talking about it on Twitter, right? They're like, oh, there's, no, there's nothing actionable on Twitter, then I can find them. These are what I call externally observable behaviors. It's a behavior that someone does. Uh, is that you as an external observer can actually see and target them to actually go and have your conversations, your interviews. Absolutely. So that's what I recommend. If you've already done it, then 
go find the externally observable behaviors, try and interview them. Uh, and then with their interviews, then build back up, redo your marketing. And then if you need to change your feature set. Awesome. Well, let me ask you a question for the course creators out there that are chomping at the bit and they're like, wow, that sounds really great. If I can sell to one teacher and get a hundred customers through their students and then leverage that trust to get into more departments around the U S or the world or whatever. But what are some advice you have on getting to that one teacher first? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or should you be so good that they find you or like, how does it work? Yeah. So exact same principles apply. You need to find the professor who's actively trying to solve a problem. Right? Don't go to the professor who's like had their course and like has their textbook, the same one for the last 10 years. What's been fascinating in this, in this journey so far, everyone we've been working with who's been willing to have a conversation with us and, and sign our letter of intent has been an associate professor. So, and what does that mean? So an associate professor is someone who is, um, I, think, I think there's like three different levels. There's like an, an adjunct, an associate, and then a full professor right and the associate professor is someone who's not tenured yet but has enough control that they can create their own curriculum and sort of design their own craft uh, their own class but they're not tenured yet uh, and something really amazing happens when you get tenured <laughs> you stop having the same incentives to create a really interesting impactful course as you did before you got tenure so um, so that just goes speaks to my point about like you got to find people who are trying to solve a problem these non-tenured professors, part of the way you get tenure is by having really great reviews from your students. And how do you get great reviews? By having experiential engaging course, which is why they want to use our curriculum. So whatever your, your university professor's world looks like that you want to target, you got to find someone who's actively trying to solve a problem. And that's what we're doing now. Um, you should know though that like uh, other people have realized how uh, powerful this market is and you are not going to be the only one trying to solve this problem. Um, so the people I've talked to, they get inundated with these conversations all the time. And what's really helped is the person who's working with me. Uh, he has a lot of, of um, credibility in this space. And so he's been able to sort of help guide me and, and point to the right people. So he's been giving me some basically social, some social cover <laughs> along the way. Um, but that combination, like I said, half the people who are buying focus ahead of time were also teachers in some form. So just having credibility and solving a problem in a really great way for a small market can get you some credibility uh, with these professors. That's awesome. So I really like that idea about, you know, if that associate professor were at the bar, they might say, oh, I, you know, I don't want to just use whoever came before me's old curriculum. I need something cutting edge. I need something fresh. I need to get some raving students. Like I, it's the same process. Exactly. Like you're, like you're saying, exactly. that's really cool. And, and that's really interesting and really keying in on the, the, um, what that professor wants and needs in their career. And, you know, they're looking for tenure or whatever, and they're, they're perhaps they're a little hungrier. So you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. So why not go find a hungry horse and offer them a glass of water? Uh, that's really cool. Um, well, let me just ask you uh, just a couple quick tactical questions. And that is uh, for your book, how'd you, what'd you use to publish it? Is it self-published? Um, did you find a printing press? What, version one, version two, what'd you mm-hmm, do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's all self-published. Mine is, so I'm an engineer, which is, you know, better or worse. <laughs> I yeah. ended up rolling my own platform using <laughs> WordPress and some software to, because I knew I was going to have a digital 
version. I thought I was going to have a mobile version, and I knew it was going to have a print version. And so anyway, like, we won't dive into that. Um, but uh, but yeah, so I built my own, own platform, and it turned out that the platform kind of like is not good because I built <laughs> I built it myself. So, so when I was uh, looking for sort of the second version, and especially when I made this jump into the curriculum space, uh, I was looking for something. I was looking for an LMS, basically, like something that was searchable, that had all of the uh, all the exercises that I could put in, extensible, and that I could write my own code and all that kind of stuff. And that's when I came across Lifter, which, like I said, has been awesome. I love it. Um, so I use that for all of the, the um, curriculum versions now, and eventually I will move the entire electronic version, which is on a standalone HTML site. I'll move that also over to Lifter as well. Cool. Um and what about the print book? That that was like, is that Create Space Amazon or like what do you? No, use? that one. That one. Okay, so like if somebody books, if somebody wants to create workbooks that they send yeah. in the mail, what where do they go? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'll have to dig up the name of this place, uh, but there's. I can show you this hack. So I've got these five workbooks here. Um. And because I'm a low volume printer, right? Like I'm not going to get thousands of these things made. Uh, you got to find a way to get in there. They're like small workbooks, but there are five of them. So this is number three this is number one. Um, you can't have, you can't get customized small versions. So there's, I found this printer who lets you basically count, even though the content of these is all the same or is all dif different because they have the same number of pages. Uh, it counts as like kind of one print print job if that makes okay. sense so instead of having like five different print jobs it was just one print job that happened to have five different versions so that cuts down on the price a lot and i can get you the name of those guys but basically all i did is for the shorter workbooks i just stuffed on notes sections at the back yeah um, you know, so that they're all the same pages so they're as long as the longest workbook and then they're uh, filled with um, notes to make up the space so did they uh, uh print on demand or do you warehouse a, a stash of them you know i warehouse stash them amazon fulfillment services or fulfillment by amazon by the way is is awesome like i totally love them i recommend them super highly uh, but basically all i did was i had all the books published and then i printed out all these i um laser cut these boxes and then i had a book building party i had a bunch of friends come over i brought a bunch of food some drinks and then we all just like assembled books uh and so we we did it a hundred at a time so i've done it twice and then i take all those books and the books and ship them off to amazon and amazon does all the, the uh, delivery fulfillment awesome what software did you use to create the workbook content the the which the, content the workbook content like, well that was just um that was just wordpress i put it on wordpress and then i i wrote a little app to download it from wordpress and, and put it into html so this is oh yeah so yeah so this <laughs> yeah, you don't don't do it. Yeah, like we shouldn't even answer this question because like it's not a good unless you're a developer you don't want to do it. But basically, it was HTML. HTML converted into PDF. PDF converted into InDesign, and like. And now you're going back to the web, right? Yeah, did, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the so, web, the web's the big one. Uh, okay, I see, I see. Cool. And what did you use for the uh, crowdfunding? Was it Kickstarter or Indiegogo or what? What you? Yeah, use? I, you know, enrolled my own again. Like, why not? Why not just do everything? <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, it was a WordPress site and, and because I, I wanted some very specific things on it and I wanted to, I want to be able to AB test uh, during the crowdfunding campaign because I'm, well, I mean like this, this, this is what I do. This is what I love is experimentation <laughs> and optimization. And so, uh, so Kickstarter won't let you AB test 
on their page. So, uh, <laughs> so I want to build my own platform for, to do that. Um, but yeah, Kickstarter is a great place to go. Tilt, um, they just got acquired, so we'll see how long they're around. But Tilt is a great place to go and look. Tilt lets you run your own crowdfunding campaign on your own website. Um, yeah, I'm sure there are WordPress plugins for it now. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Justin Wilcox, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Uh, if you want to check out Justin's blog, you can head on over to customerdevlabs.com. And over there, there's some links over to the focus framework. So you can see what he put together there. Is there anywhere else you want to send people, Justin, if they want to connect with you and find out more? Um, that Those are the best places. This is my, my blog subscribing there. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I don't, I don't do much, but I'm Justin underscore Wilcox on Twitter uh, if you want to catch me there. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on the show. And I really appreciate what you're saying about uh, really getting out of the building, but not just that's a good idea, but how to do that and how to really focus on the problems and building solutions for problems and yeah, uh, go, going yeah. about things that way. So yeah. thanks for coming and we'll have to do it again sometime. I would love to. And, and and to everyone out there who's starting a company, like I'm wishing you the best of luck uh, and on, on help on your journey. If you need help on your journey, just let me know. I'm really excited for what you're doing uh, and I'm, I'm happy to help.